You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP, the education podcast for busy GPs. Today on the podcast, my guest is Dr Louise Farrell. Welcome, Louise. Oh, thank you. Uh, Louise, can you tell me a bit more about yourself? Uh, yes, I've been a consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist for more than 30 years. I'm the director of the colposcopy services here at King Edward and I'm also the director of postgraduate medical education at King Edward. Thank you. And you've got a connection to general practice as well. Yes. Your husband's yes. a GP and, and your daughter's a GP registrar. That's, that's right, yes. Now, Louise, we're, we're talking about something really important today. There are big changes to cervical screening, um, so it'll be on the 1st of December for podcast listeners. These are pretty substantial changes. They are. And they'll affect the way patients come into GPs and, and what GPs do with regard to cervical screening. So let, let's go through what are the big significant changes that are ahead of us? Well, the significant changes are we're going to uh, raise the um, commencement age uh, to 25, so women will only commence cervical screening after the age of 25, and they will receive invitations to screen. So now they just attend for screening and then they get reminders if they're overdue, but they'll be sent invitations to screen. And the screening process will involve HPV testing for oncogenic HPV, and if that's positive, then uh, for non-16, 18, they will um, have liquid-based cytology performed on that same sample, and that result will depend on whether they go for colposcopy, but for all 16, 18 positive HPV, they'll go straight to colposcopy, irrespective of the cytology result, which will be done to inform the colposcopy. So if the HPV test is negative, they'll have it every five years. Until uh, the ages of between 70 and 74, they'll receive an invitation to exit the program. So um, it will involve changes because there's going to be a national register which is going to have the information on every woman in Australia and they're going to use Medicare data. Currently, the only way to get on the register is if you go and have a pap smear and that enrols you in the register. And now they're using Medicare data and they will be inviting people based on their age and when they're due. So we're seeing changes to the types of tests we're offering people. We're seeing changes to the age of entry, mm-hmm. changes to the frequency and then the implementation of a, of a recall program effectively. Yes. And I, I guess a lot of GPs would say, you know, they'd approach this with a sense of change. I've got to learn new things and it's sort of a groan around the nation of people who've got to be changing what they've been doing. But there's some real advantages to this program. Oh, there are some, some real advantages. One, reduced frequency of screening. So it's thought that people would uh, go down from maybe having 26 cervical screens in a lifetime to 10 on average. And so the the frequency of screening is reducing. We're going to reduce the uh, rate of cervical cancer and cervical cancer mortality by 30%. So there are some real advantages to this program. And that's probably not really getting out there. A 30% reduction in cancer Mm. rates is a pretty significant change, isn't it? It is, and on a less frequent screening. So GPs can be out there sort of passing that message on to patients that Mm. this is better tests that have better rates of treating cancer Mm -hmm. and less frequent testing. Yes. Now, one of the controversial points, I think a lot of GPs question is, is this later commencement of the program? Yes, so a lot of people are concerned because we're raising the age to 25 to commence screening, and that's because all the evidence around the world has shown 
that there is no benefit in terms of cervical cancer prevention in screening under 25. And we do do a lot of harm by treating young women who've not yet commenced their obstetric careers. And so we know that there is a risk and to treating these young women and there really appears to be no benefit from very extensive studies worldwide. So there's substantial risk of damage to the cervix? And, and well, the risk of damage to the cervix is actually quite small, and I don't think that we want to worry people by saying there's a huge risk of damaging their cervix. But it is a small risk, and if it's not really conveying any benefit, do you want to take any risk yeah. about people's reproductive health? And you were saying before that, that there's lots of examples of this later age of entry to the program being very successful with very high rates. Sure, because in England they, introduced, they raised the age of their screening to 25 in 2003, but nearby Wales still commenced screening at 21 and only changed in 2013. So there was a 10-year window where you could compare cervical cancer rates between England and Wales and they showed no difference in the 1B cancer rates in women under 30 between England and Wales in those 10 years. And also in, in a lot of the European countries they have never screened under 25, they've always commenced screening either 25 and in some European countries 30. So we have always had the youngest uh, age of commencement of cervical screening in the world. and you know, we are potentially causing some harm by mm -hmm. that. And I guess we're, we're moving into an age now where we've had many years of cervical cancer vaccines as well. Yes, in that. and that's the, the real reason that we're really confident that this is safe. We've had very good vaccination rates in Australia and we know that the types that are most oncogenic, 16 and 18, will be prevented by the vaccine. And also they're the types that are most likely to occur in the young woman that have a greater, a more rapid rate of transition from infection to oncogenesis. So by protecting those young women from 16 and 18, we should really be uh, preventing a lot of the high grade disease and cancers in those young women. Uh, I had some questions that a few people asked me. One of them was around people who, would say, were on the shoulder or, or the, the cusp, so they'd commence, say, at age 18 or 19 or 20 now. Do they, and say they've had a normal test so far, do they just follow the current routine screening or do no, they go five no, years? No, if they've, if they've had normal screening to date and they're under 25, they will not be invited to screen again until they reach 25. However, if they've had an abnormal result, they will follow the same pathway. So if you have a pap smear at 18 and it was normal, you will not be invited to screen again until you're 25. But if you've had a pap smear that shows a, a possible high cell, you'll still be recommended to go for colposcopy and follow up after that abnormal pap smear. There's also some questioning around the non-16-18, or you know, people affected by non-16-18 causing cancer. What are your thoughts on that in terms of the risk and you know, the population yeah. size? Well, if you look at non-16-18 oncogenic HPV, the risk of it turning into a cervical neoplasm is so much lower than 16 or 18. The 10-year cumulative CIN3 rate in 16 is about 20%, but it's in the very low percent, you know, sort of 2 to 3% in um, the non 16, 18 HPV, so it's really very low. They have a much lower rate 
of progression to oncogenesis than the 1618s. The 1618s tend to persist more than the, the other high-risk HPVs and it's persistence of the virus that causes the oncogenic changes. I think that's a really important point that, that there is that I think people see cancer as cancer regardless mm. and there's a segregation of, of disease aggressiveness mm. in the types of, mm. of cancers we're targeting. There's a lot of questions amongst GPs around, well, what does it mean for the frequency of visits and what about all those people that will miss out on all the other things, the preventive health, the STI checks and so forth? What are your thoughts yes, on that? I think we're going to have to have a really strong campaign to continue to promote STI screening in young women because unlike cervical screening for cancer where you can invite people, um, it's a bit different inviting people to have STI screening. So I think the sort of campaigns that we've used to encourage people to go for pap smear screening, we need to now encourage them to visit their GP for STI screening because it's it's really important and, and we need to emphasise that because otherwise I think we'll see um, some of those opportunistic STIs not being detected, which we, we have had a significant a pickup of opportunistic screening for STIs when people have been having pap smears. And I guess, I mean, a lot of people forget that perhaps these people are still coming in for contraceptive advice, prescriptions and so forth, mm. so it's really trying to harness everything we can out of those consultations, yeah. Yeah. which will be really important. There's lots of other questions that relate to the change in the frequency of the screening and mm. what it means. So just to sort of clarify a few other points that people have asked me, Firstly, for non-screening patients who you would normally do a smear for, a smear still applies. So for non-screening patients, they will have what's called a co-test, which will be... So if you see someone who has abnormal bleeding, for example, then you would do an HPV test and a liquid-based cytology, so so-called co-test. And the co-test is used after treatment for high-grade disease to follow it up. So yes, they will have the same test, you collect it as you collect a liquid-based cytology sample and they will have, instead of having HPV and then having a liquid-based cytology ref reflexly done, if you order a co-test they'll do both together, irrespective of the HPV result. So they'll still be taking smears as, as there is yeah. now? In, yeah. In... So there is the opportunity for self-sampling which will be available to under-screened and never-screened women who are o over 30 years of age. Uh, so the definition of underscreen is you're more than two years overdue for your cervical screening test. And because some of the studies seem to indicate it's not quite as effective as a physician-collected sample, and also the process is more costly because if they're positive, they will need to come back for a second visit for their liquid-based cytology, the government is trying to encourage are people to promote conventional screening pathways. So a liquid-based cytology sample is taken from the cervix by a health practitioner which goes for HPV testing in the first instance. I mean, what sort of rates are we expecting with self-screening? Well, it, it'll be interesting and I think that's an unknown. Um, in some countries in the world, you know, in the Netherlands, for example, that they're offering it either self-screening or health provider testing. So it's either or, and you can kind of choose. We're not really promoting that in Australia. We're wanting the conventional screening pathway where possible. But we know that 80% of the cancers in Australia occur in the under-screened and never-screened women. So 
it would be good to get at some of those, whether providing self-sampling will encourage those women to screen is something we don't really know. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to be like the bowel screen, it's going to be posted out to people. They will be sent a letter saying that they are eligible if they've never screened or they're over two, year, two years overdue and they need to attend their health provider to facilitate that and that's so that there will be good follow-up of positive results so that you will need to facilitate the self-screening as a general practitioner. And just getting back to say physician testing, Mm. um, do you see a change to five years offering any risk of say people you know blowing out a little bit longer into you know we know that if you recall people every five years they probably take longer than five years to come back. So they'll get an invitation three months before they're due so now the registry doesn't send out invitations so the registry will send out invitations and then when they're overdue, they'll send a reminder. So it sounds like there's been a fair degree of modelling on, on how it's going to work yes. and, and the nuts and bolts of how it rolls out. Any other sort of significant changes that we can expect? Well, one of the changes is that the registry will have data from vaccination, all their screening history. Um, there's a lot of work being done to try and ensure that the data is secure and that's obviously a big worry. I mean, but also it has to be accessible so that that doctors can easily get someone's um, screening history and and that's not so easy at the moment you know we we can get West Australian screening history pretty easily the registry is pretty accessible but if you want to get screening history from other states it's almost impossible and the the single registry will allow very good follow-up for women across Australia it's also going to include colposcopy data for the first time so all the colposcopists have to enter their data so there'll be a lot of very good information on our screening program. And I guess from a non-GP perspective, are, are hospitals gearing up for the change because you're going to have higher rates of cancer yes. detection? And So it's thought that in the first instance there'll be quite a big increase in colposcopy numbers for those women who are HPV positive, who are in the perhaps missed the, the first lot of the vaccination or had already commenced intercourse before they were were vaccinated. So we think there will be about a 20% increase in colposcopy. And one of the issues will be on a five-yearly screening program that when the new program comes in, you'll expect a lot of people who maybe are overdue or have been due for their pap smear but have been holding off, there'll be a big increase in numbers. So there'll be a big increase in screening and obviously colposcopy numbers, and then because the majority of people will be negative. It'll be five years before they come again, Mm. and so there'll be peaks and troughs. And that'll be quite hard for colposcopists to manage because it's a a physician-involved procedure. The labs, because liquid-based cytology, well, the HPV testing is automated, and a liquid-based cytology is also capable of some automation and they'll be doing a lot less cytology. It's probably easier for them to cope with the peaks and troughs of screening numbers. There's, there's big structural changes for... Well, the pathology labs have had to undergo enormous uh, changes. You know, they're going from doing 2 million pap smears a year down to about 330,000 liquid-based cytology samples in a year. So it's a huge reduction in their workload. So all their screeners have had to be laid off and it's a big 
big reduction. And finally, just talking about the message that's out there, because there's the message to GPs, which probably hasn't been a strong message yet, and we, we yeah. probably need to work on that. And then there's the message to the public as well, because for everyone who comes to the GP, there's going to be so many people that, that are so ingrained in the current screening yes. program, they've spent a lifetime in the current screening program, that will all change, and that, that's going to take quite a lot of education, isn't it? It is. I think the, the public people have been pushed the pap smear for so long, and how it's very important to have it every two years, and that's deeply ingrained in some women's psyche, and I, I think it, it will take quite a lot of effort to move people off something that they've always thought was very important, and that this program is superior, and I think that though the science says it's superior, you have to win the hearts and minds of the public, yeah. not always swayed by science. Do you see any other changes ahead? that follow on from this? Well, I think that we'll be looking for biomarkers of integration and, you know, already there's a lot of work on biomarkers to, to look at HPV integration because currently, I mean, the test just picks up HPV and we're not differentiating between transient infection, which will spontaneously resolve, and persistent infection that may become integrated and lead to oncogenic changes. So there's a lot of work around the world looking at biomarkers. We know that doing genotyping for 16 and 18 is beneficial and treating those as higher risk than the other oncogenic HPVs is, is beneficial in stratifying risk. But there are other ways also of stratifying risk and I think that they will ultimately come into play. And that's the advantage about liquid-based cytology, that it, that we'll be able to use the samples for looking at things like biomarkers and, and other markers of integration. And you can change the technology. And HPV testing, of course, isn't a single t technology. There, There's lots of different ways you can do polymerized chain reaction, PCR, you can do hybrid capture, so you can look for messenger RNA. There, there are a lot of different technologies involved in picking up HPV DNA. So exciting times ahead, really, yes. and, and probably changes after this. But back to GPs, it's really an important message around the change. We're moving to HPV testing and liquid-based testing mm. and changing the age of entry, changing the frequency of testing, the availability of self-testing for the hard-to-reach groups and a register for patients, but most importantly, a better cervical cancer screening program for everyone yes. and better outcomes. Yes. Thanks for talking to us today and thanks for your time. My pleasure.